It's so weird. And that was the moment I realised that this is the first Louis documentary we've had in the UK. And it's cold as fuck. Hello and welcome to All The Way Through, the podcast journey through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out if we love him as much as we thought we did. My name, as always, is Matthew Dunmars and I'm joined forever and always by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello. New season, new us. Big school. This is big school. We've sharpened all of our pencils. New uniform, school shoes that don't quite fit yet, but we'll grow into them. Louis given us a pep talk. <laughs> oh, but you have to go into the the wilderness of Savile. Yeah, that's the next one. Who are you going to get as your guest? It's TBC. We're still working that out for Savile. Big decision. High stakes, that one. So, Alex, usually we have a sort of dress-up outfit for these episodes. I think what we're probably going to wear this episode is a, a bit of a disclaimer. If you don't know, this episode is about... Uh, a former British TV personality called Jimmy Savile and it will contain some conversation about paedophilia and abuse so if that's something that you'd rather not listen to then we really don't mind if you sit this one out and we are just going to review the documentary the same way that we always do obviously a lot of us know what happened after this in real life and we will touch on that but we won't go too much into it because Louis comes back to this topic himself later on so we will as well so with that We'll just start talking about when Louis met Jimmy. How would you describe the sort of format of when Louis met? Good question. I think the the format seems to be Louis is almost like a shadow of the person. It feels like it's not very much like a series of staged uh, interactions, although there is an element of that. It feels like Louis is literally kind of like attached to that person like a limpet for the whole show. And then they kind of see the inner workings of their life, I suppose. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's right. So this is the 13th of April in the year 2000 which uh, slightly messes with our chronological order because this is actually prior to season three of Weird Weekends. Keeping up his time traveller persona, Louis has gone back in time. There is actually a gap between this when Louis met and then the next one, which is 2001, which is kind of post the whole third series of Weird Weekends. So this feels almost like the pilot episode. Maybe they were testing it out to see if they liked the format and then they were going to see if they could get a series from there. It feels a lot more rough and ready than some of the previous documentaries. Definitely. Would you like to know what the UK number one single was at this time? Oh, I feel like I should be able to guess. I don't know. Go on, tell me. It was the second number one for Craig David, and it was Fill Me In. Yes. Which is very apt, as this is essentially what Louis is asking Jimmy to do all documentary. Fill me in with all the details. Fill me in. Talk about it. Okay, so we open the very first sort of little intro skit moment. We're in a house. Louis is sporting... An incredible hill walking jumper in my dad's favourite colours of beige and navy. This really is the turtleneck era for Louis, as we'll see. It's quite chilly, I suppose, in Britain compared to Texas or wherever he normally is. This whole episode seems to take place in Siberia. The whole <laughs> the whole weather, it looks Baltic for the whole time they were filming. Wherever they seem to be, it's 
freezing. It is cold up north in Yorkshire. It is. It's grim up north. So you see Louis speaking to Jimmy Savile. This must be quite early on and Louis asking Jimmy, do you think that this is going to work? Are you excited about filming with me? And Jimmy says that he thinks it will work because I'm odd. You're different. We're a good double. He says, between us, we should be able to do something. So then we cut to the title card, which is actually very similar to the Weird Weekends title card. But instead of the images of Louis going around, they've kind of like put in clips of Jimmy's career throughout and a few from the documentary itself. And maybe for some early context, if you have literally no idea who Jimmy Savile is, he appeared on radio and TV from the 70s, maybe earlier. Even though he sort of wasn't really on TV when we were kids, we would still see reruns and he was still a famous person. So he became this massive icon of British TV culture. Everybody knew who Jimmy Savile was, no matter how old you were. Yeah, I think that's maybe why they do get to this. They do a little rundown of Jimmy's career, but they don't do that until quite about 14 minutes into the documentary, which kind of shows you that this man was so well known that they feel like they didn't even need that, I suppose. It's interesting in the episode summary, they describe him as eccentric broadcaster and charity fundraiser. So this is how he is known as an eccentric figure, as someone who does a lot for charity. This is the whole public persona of Jimmy Savile. And he is a strange looking man was a strange looking man he has this long kind of wispy white hair always smokes a cigar as soon as he wakes up in the morning he lights a cigar he wears track suits he has gold chains very uh, memorable looking person distinctive i would say distinctive yeah but also in this very lockdown chic constantly in these kind of quite scratty track suits and his hair is obviously very long it's a look that most of us will have experienced during lockdown But the episode kicks off. We see Louis standing outside Jimmy's flat in this very dark hallway. He lives in Leeds. So he presses on the the kind of intercom and Jimmy instantly begins with a joke. Is that the Spice Girls? And Louis says, yes, it is. And then we kind of slowly make our way up the stairs. Louis says, I've always been intrigued by the TV personality and charity fundraiser Sir Jimmy Savile. Which is a very jarring way for him to be introduced in this day and age but was who he was he was a man who was knighted in the year 1990 during thatcher's government and apparently thatcher lobbied to have him knighted on several occasions but was kind of hit by issues with the knighthood committee who didn't want to knight him for who knows what reason his manner of life apparently so yeah he was a knight of the realm an honor in british society i suppose huge honor I don't know if it's explicitly said, but I think Jimmy lives in the penthouse of this building. So he's in this sort of big top floor flat. When Louis gets up to the front door, they talk through the letterbox for a little bit. And there's there's more sort of what becomes exhausting patter back and forth. And then Jimmy does finally let Louis in to his home. For it being presumably quite expensive, and I know that Leeds wasn't the city then that it is now, but it's a very sort of, I don't know, 80s, like not very chic apartment, considering how much money is probably put into it. It's super dated. Interestingly, this whole episode feels a little bit like a strange episode of location, 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 as we go around various Savile estates. But this one was fairly grim. Yeah, it's got pine cladding in the hallway, which isn't my personal favourite. I know some people like it. And there's like a big sort of corner settee, like a white one, but that looks very 80s as well. I don't know, it's got this very strange, stuck in an odd time vibe, and it doesn't seem to have very much love for personality in the decorating no 
But instantly we're kind of going around the house with Savile in classic Louis fashion. Jimmy is on camera. He looks really disheveled, but his whole personality is I'm on camera, so I will act as people expect me to act, which becomes a real kind of issue as we go forward. Louis asks him, how are you feeling, Jimmy? Regularly, what about you? And then he takes a puff on his cigar. It's all about this bravado, this personality. He always has to have something smart and clever to say which often doesn't have very much substance. And to contradict, he constantly needs to contradict, which is just so interesting and must become so frustrating as you kind of film with him. So Louis is asking Jimmy about this house there in the centre of Leeds. Jimmy does say this was the house he was born in, right? I think he says I was born here. Yeah. But the way he tones it, you could imply in this room. He says I was born here. I wake up under the same patch of sky that I did when I worked down the pit. And actually, that is true. Savile's first job was as a miner down in the pits. But there's vast views of the kind of Yorkshire countryside in the background. It's clearly a very beautiful spot. And it's interesting he says that with kind of like a working class TV personality trying not to show that they've lost their roots, I suppose. One bit that Jimmy Savile said here that disturbed me early on was when Louis asking how he is and he says I'm as fit as a butcher's dog and then he continues to sort of mumble and says something about I've eaten all the bones and the hair and the skin or something very sort of Hannibal Lecter which really just didn't sit right. (laughs) This is the thing the whole dialogue and language of Savile is always really close to the edge of what's acceptable and I think he knows that it always slightly jars with what's going on around but people seem to kind of let him away with it. Louis says, oh, you were born in this flat. And Jimmy says, no, no, I was born in Leeds and you're not listening. I'm not going to do an impression of him. I nearly kind of did, but I'm not going to. There's already this sort of awkward tension between the two of them where Louis clearly realising, oh, every single thing I say is going to get a possibly negative knockback. So they continue on the kind of flat tour. They go out to a balcony, which Jimmy has on his property. Again, the views from it are absolutely stunning. Yorkshire looks beautiful. And Louis goes in for the kill almost straight away in terms of his questioning and asks about his marital status. He says, you don't have a wife or family. And he says, no, none whatsoever. And then he asks Savile why. He says he hasn't the faintest idea and then tries to turn the conversation, which you see him do a lot, try and turn the conversation to something else in the distance. What's going on in this view? If you look over here, there's something. And then we get this kind of metaphor, why Savile doesn't want a wife or someone intimate in his life, his brain damage. This comes up again and again, where he claims that if you let any women get close to you, they'll affect your mental capacity to the point of causing brain damage. Yeah, he says he doesn't want to be driven potty by a woman, which is clearly a line he's probably rehearsed and said a thousand times before. We go from this slightly intense interaction to the kitchen, uh, which has this, which is the oddest kitchen I've ever seen. It looks like a bad set from a film. It looks like an Ikea showroom from the 90s. Yeah, but that hasn't been touched since. There is this weird central island, but it's in an odd shape. Louis instantly kind of rummaging in cupboards, looks in the fridge and there's nothing there but like a biscuit wrapped up in cling film. When he asks what it is, Jimmy says, oh, it's a biscuit for a party. So I guess maybe we can all guess what kind of biscuit it is. That didn't even cross my mind. No? (laughs) 
Louis continues rummaging around the kitchen and then we get to what looks like a tea container, I suppose. And it's got a commemorative picture of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. So Louis says, Prince yeah. Charles and Princess Diana, who you know. And Jimmy replies, is that a fact? And kind of instantly is dodging this question. And then he tries to move on to a picture of him and Elvis Presley that he's got there. But the camera doesn't move. Louis doesn't move. They stick on this Charles and Diana portrait and he really doesn't want to discuss it. Louis eventually ends up saying, I thought you said we could talk about anything. And Savile replies, we can talk about anything and you'll find out how tricky I am. Savile was a close confidant of both Charles and Diana. That's on public record. There's an article in The Guardian from 2015 which is kind of laying out their relationship. Apparently, Savile is meant to have visited Prince Charles' official London residence several times in the late 80s, where he was acting as a kind of marriage counsellor between Charles and Diana. Despite not being married and never having had a wife. (laughs) They apparently met at a charity gig and then that was it. They had a relationship from there on. I know I slightly touched on the Daphne line there. Then in 1999, so not long before this documentary, Charles had apparently accepted an invitation to a private meal at Savile's Glen Co. home. So interestingly, The Guardian mentions the fact that Savile asked three local women to dress up in pinafores emblazoned with the letters HRH. And then Charles, following this, sent him a Christmas card with a note, Jimmy, with affectionate greetings from Charles, give my love to your ladies in Scotland. On his 80th birthday, Charles reportedly sent him a box of cigars and a pair of gold cufflinks with a note saying, nobody will ever know what you've done for this country, Jimmy. This is to go some way into thanking you for that. Yeah. (laughs) I wish we could do an audio description of the face because we both just filled each other. When we say that this this guy had power and authority, it's no joke. He, He really, really did. Like in terms of the first few minutes of this, we touch on the fact he's knighted and this was a big thing by Thatcher. He was friends with Prince Charles and Princess Diana. This was a man of power. And yet he also has his working class roots, which means that lots of people, poorer people, related to him. Absolutely. He kind of had everyone wrapped around his finger. Side note, the photo of Elvis is real. Oh, really? He did meet Elvis? He did. He went over to America in 1960 to deliver him a golden disc. It's now or never was number one in the UK. So he went unannounced to America with a piece of paper with like a number on for Elvis's manager and managed to wangle an introduction. How weird. (laughs) Exactly. Lucky Elvis, I guess. So undeterred or still trying his best, Louis continues the tour and the conversation about Jimmy Savile's home. So he points out that Savile has no food and no cooker, no way of cooking in his home whatsoever. And Savile basically says, I don't have any need. You know, I go out if I want food. And Louis says, oh, what if you have friends round? What if you're entertaining for a dinner party? And Savile says he doesn't have those kind of friends. No cooker, no brain damage is his go-to line. That well-known phrase. So we move from the kitchen into Jimmy's bedroom, which I've wrote is literally every pensioner's house I've ever seen. It's super floral. It's your average kind of nan's house. And yet Savile announces that this is the altar, a place to go to sleep, a nice place to be. And Louis asks, Is the altar, is that because you sacrificed people on the altar? Obviously everyone is cringing at that now. But Savile says, no, no, that's negative. I'm positive. They go through the bedroom into a conservatory bit on the side. And Jimmy has quite a nice road bike. And then he also has a treadmill. So he gets on the treadmill and he's kind of doing that while smoking a cigar. 
pretending to ring somebody. Yes, treadmill's got a phone on it. Height of technology. It's clear he's showing off for the camera, which is kind of understandable. This is a guy who likes to be on TV, but he thinks it should be impossible for him to keep up this rate of performance throughout the whole thing. You'd think that. You'd think. We go into a different second bedroom, and this is so weird there's a pad maybe next to the phone with louis name and address written on it he is a little bit taken aback by this and says hang on why is my name and address written on this and savile says that he didn't know if louis existed and he thought that he might have to send some quote lads with strong sicilian accents round louis interrupts at this point and says to break my legs and savile says no just to talk to you Louis's still concerned. He says, how did you get my address? And Savile says, I can get anything. There's nothing I can't get. And there's nothing I can't do. And we go back to this very intense eye contact that which he occasionally does. He kind of locks onto Louis's eyes and just stares him out. This is a, like a slight glimpse into the other side of Savile, isn't it? This slightly intimidating figure. I think it's very obvious he's deliberately left the notepad there for Louis to find. But why is he doing that? Is he just showing I can get to you if I need to? It is a horrible psychological game. I think I would feel pretty worried by that. Yeah. But then some people might argue, well, Louis knows his address. I don't know. But I think that statement so early on, I can do anything I want and I can get anything I want, it sums up so much of where he was at this point, what he thought of himself and maybe what everyone else thought of him too. Almost like this godlike status. The godfather, as he continuously refers to himself, he clearly models himself on this kind of figure. Louis is kind of laughing nervously at this, but there's a bit where he looks behind the camera, clearly at the director, Will, who is filming the whole thing, we find out as the documentary goes on, and he's obviously a little stunned by what he's seen. But we move on, we're looking more at Jimmy's stuff. Clearly this is going to be a thing that repeats, they want to see how does your home reflect you and what kind of memories are lying around there. And we get to a play setting with the ER logo on it. And it's a kind of royal invitation, I think. I think Savile says it's a name badge that you wear and it gets you in places. If the Queen invites you around for dinner, you have to wear a name badge. Louis then goes, what did you chat about with the Queen? And Jimmy says, what we chat about is a no-go area. I'm not a grass. And he uses this term again and again and again. He keeps saying, I'm not a grass. Louis backs off and says, oh no, I understand. If you were to talk about this, it'd be indiscreet. But Jimmy, again, it would be being a grass. I don't reveal secrets. And he refers to Amerta, the code of silence, leaning very heavily into this godfather thing. I mean, I know a lot of people have certain feelings and conspiracy theories about the Queen, but I like the idea of him whipping her up into this gangster role by (laughs) saying, I'm not a grass. It's like she's the head of the gang in prison or something. She's Brando, he's Al Pacino. That's how it works. So I've just written here in my notes that all of this back and forth is so exhausting, even just to watch. And Louis, as you already said, Matt, looks bewildered. And there are a lot of points where he's obviously looking at the director behind the camera, almost saying, are you hearing this? And I think it's an interesting fourth wall break that happens a lot in this episode. And I think like you were saying, maybe because it's a pilot and they weren't really sure what they were doing yet. But Will becomes quite a big character in it, even though... You don't see him on camera, but more than ever before, the director sort of needs to give Louis support. I think we'll get into this later, but this really is when Louis and Will met Jimmy. Because you're right, the camera and the director are so important. And following this kind of chat about being a grass, Louis is talking directly into the camera saying something, which is hard to hear because Jimmy's talking over him. And then Jimmy jumps in and he's talking directly down the barrel of the camera and he says, I've got him on the ropes. There's that famous Louis smile again. I've got him on the ropes. And he clearly sees this as like a combat 
combative thing. It's not a conversation. Is this, though, potentially indicative of him feeling like he's on the ropes? He has to sort of push back because he feels vulnerable and he feels like he's maybe going to get found out in some capacity. Definitely. And I think both of them get into this spirit of one-upmanship. Like, someone has to have the last word all the time. It's this weird kind of competitive relationship that they strike up straight away. Probably not where you want to be already at this early stage of an interview. But anyway, they decide that Jimmy's house probably stinks too much of piss and biscuits, so they go out for a walk. (laughs) Cigar smoke, I assume. (laughs) And cigar smoke and sweaty treadmills. Jimmy's getting dressed up in his winter wear. Louis says he looks quite hip-hop, quite rap. Do you know what I mean by that, he says. And Jimmy Savile says, I haven't the faintest idea. He doesn't look quite rap. Well, he got like a sort of deerstalker style hat, then his anorak hood up, and then he's got the, he's had these tinted glasses that he would always wear that became a bit of a trademark. And obviously he's got his tracksuit and his trainers on. Does he look a bit like a member of Goldie Looking Chain? He looks more like Larry David. <laughs> Another point of combat now is shoelaces. It never stops. Jimmy doesn't do his shoelaces up and he says this because he's never been given a reason why he should. Louis says, well, you might trip over them. Jimmy very quickly says, not long enough for that. Next. This becomes such an annoying, irritating thing that he comes back to again and again. Next. Next. He's always asking for the next question. Again, it's not a conversation. It's just, what can I make you feel stupid about next? Yeah. They go outside the building and they're in the foyer bit again. It's really dark in there, actually. Someone needs to put some lighting in. And they take a pause by the door and Jimmy's kind of jabbering on. They both sit down. The camera hangs back a little bit. I assume they must know that it's still recording. Jimmy says, instead of the negative things that keep cropping up, try and work out two or three things where I can give you a piece of wisdom. And then he says, let's throw them something. He wants to try and help the people that are watching. I think possibly, and I think maybe this happens a couple of times, there was maybe a bigger camera. And I think the big camera is coming down in the lift at the moment. And they're sitting waiting, which explains why they're sitting in the lobby. And I think Will was probably shooting on the little camera, like from his hip or whatever. And maybe Savile just didn't realise it was still on. That's interesting. Because I did really wonder about this because the camera is there and it's just slightly moved back in the office this is where they're like filming through the door and they forget they're being filmed but this is real life and surely you'd notice the camera was there but you're right it maybe is a smaller camera that he just doesn't clock all the time So we go outside to the streets of Leeds. Louis is back in the driving seat. First time we've seen him do this on English soil. How weird, he's in the other side of the car. I know. Louis kind of narrating over the top and he says, A difference of opinion over the things we should be talking about was starting to emerge. Basically, Savile's giving Louis a hard time while he's driving. You know, it's like when your parents in the backseat telling you how to drive and also lecturing you. Savile's saying it's easier to make negative TV programmes. Louis comes back with, well, it can't all be positive. Fair. And then Savile immediately snaps and says, sure, fine. See you in court. I'll be happy to take some money off you. He's so quick and very defensive. Question, who did that remind you of? For me, that was very Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. The instant legal threats. But also ridiculous because... Exactly, yeah, there was nothing said. Jimmy's talking about Louis and he says an audience member might say he doesn't just interview unusual people, look at the wisdom he extracted. Is Jimmy annoyed that he is being put into the category of Louis' weird world? It's funny because he likes to sell himself on how weird he is. But yeah, clearly he wants people to respect him and to think he's wise. So he does struggle with that, I think. 
they're still driving after Savile sort of, you know, lost his shit a little bit and said, I'm going to sue you. And then they fall silent. And it's probably the longest silence that I can remember in a Louis Theroux documentary. And the camera just sort of pans between them and they're both silent. And Louis just looks pissed off, really. And then Jimmy Savile, as we said before, just starts shouting from the back, next, next. He wants the next question. Louis just silent, very despondent. He says, don't think I have a next question. And then that's where we hear this voice off screen, which is clearly the director will say, We should take five, you know? And then Louis goes, Yeah, yeah, let's just take a moment. Let's not do anything for now. He's clearly exhausted. And then Savile chips in, If you point the camera at me, we work. I found that comment so interesting because it shows that Savile is really that kind of era of TV that is pre the reality TV explosion, right? He thinks as soon as the camera is on, I have to work, I have to do something, I have to be entertaining. He can't just kind of exist on camera. That whole concept would baffle someone like him. But also, and this is one of those with hindsight comments, he probably just doesn't want to be filmed when he's not aware of the fact that he's being filmed. Yeah, absolutely. And what I think about there is the fact that they then turned the camera off and that awkward silence probably just continued for... (laughs) however long it took them to get to wherever they were going. Yeah, so we don't really know where they're going. They seem to be walking down a road in Leeds and then Louis narrates over the top that it was coming to the end of their first day together and there was a sense they were getting off on the wrong foot. Imagine how tired you'd be. (laughs) Oh, it'd be exhausting. But Louis undeterred. He wants to see if he can crack this nut. So he's going to attempt to bond with him through making the tea. We know this one. This is a classic Louis move. He's wearing the same jumper, which I mean, I know you can wear a jumper now and again, but if you're appearing on the telly. Look, that's not the worst sartorial hygiene issue of this show, which we will get to later. That's true. (laughs) Jimmy Savile comes through to the kitchen wearing a very sort of patriotic looking red, blue and white tracksuit. He looks like he's managing Glasgow Rangers. I've never seen anyone dressed like this he makes a big deal of telling louis that he's such a good guy that he went out and he bought coffee and milk for the crew so louis's making the tea that's his peace offering to jimmy but he can't help himself can i louis instantly he wants to show jimmy what he's found and what he's found is a big stash of booze in a cupboard and it's opened and what they hadn't actually mentioned until now and i don't think i realized is that Jimmy Savile was allegedly a teetotaler, so didn't drink. And yet here he is with all these bottles of whiskey and rum and whatever else open in his cupboard. But he doesn't have anyone round. He says he doesn't entertain. So I think that's probably a fair thing to bring up. Alex, but it was how he delivered it. This is a chance for Savile, the interviewer, to lecture him on what he's done wrong there. So Jimmy says, ask me what they are. A good interviewer never opinionates before they answer because the answer might make him look a bit silly. What this is doing though obviously is buying him some time to think about his answer louis says it is odd for a teetotal to have open booze jimmy again oh you're giving your opinion are you asking me or telling me finally jimmy cooks up this thing that it belongs to his older brother who is a former navy man who lives in a home in leeds who's in his 80s and he likes to drink rum because that's what all navy men do yeah I tried to find out if there was any kind of deception with Jimmy's teetotal thing. It's hard to pin down an accurate answer. But it's worth saying that in testimonies of people who've come forward since, there's a guy who was interviewed by the Sunday Post called Adam Taggart, who was in his 50s when he kind of comes out with this. And he says that he met Jimmy on a camping trip in the Highlands and was later molested by him. But he would offer people alcohol and cigars. He'd offer children alcohol and cigars, which he used to carry around with him in his car. So even if he didn't drink, he was plying other people with booze. 
And actually, if you are someone who has a lot of secrets that you want to keep secret, probably smart not to drink. Absolutely. So Jimmy says very patronizingly, isn't it better when you ask questions? Louis says, well, it is and it isn't because I thought we were having a conversation. And obviously a conversation doesn't usually result in you getting told off by who you're talking to. And Savile says, well, it's not a conversation when there are accusations. And then Louis can't again help himself and says, oh, you didn't like that. You didn't like when I asked you that question. And Savile says, nope, I loved it. So they're just doing this odd playground sniping thing almost like siblings it doesn't even make sense yeah it's interesting because this is not often louis strategy in these interviews right he usually lets people talk enough to kind of expose themselves but in this one he can't help but getting in this kind of competitive state get into this battle with jimmy from the off and it doesn't make either of them look particularly good it doesn't make for great tv either it's uncomfortable They leave that conversation and go into the bedroom where Jimmy is packing for a celebrity cruise. He is setting off from Liverpool. Louis is not invited. So they're packing in the bedroom. It's really the necessities. Extra big cigars for the TV and newspapers. When Louis asks why, Savile says, will they look better? He packs a box of condoms because he says, hope springs eternal, especially if you're single. I just wrote fucking hell after that. Uh, Bleach everything after that. Then this is my favourite bit of this episode, I think, because it just came out of nowhere. I'd completely forgotten. Savile says he's going on a cruise with a friend, a personal friend, and he's called Jim the Pill, who's a retired chemist and into property right now. It's a great Scorsese movie character, isn't it? So they continue packing while they're waiting for Jim, who's coming round. And Savile packs one shirt. And then Louis says, what about pants? Don't you need underwear? And this is where Jimmy Savile claims that every single night when he's travelling, he just washes the pair of pants that he is wearing, hangs them up overnight, and then wears them again the next day. And he says, don't take gear you don't really need. So that's a top tip. This struck me as a man who is caught in the fact that he has a very disgusting habit and then instantly tries to engineer a solution. Louis won't let this go. He's like a dog with a bone with his underpant thing. And he's like, oh, but what about all the washing stuff that you need? And Savile says, oh, I wash them with water. Just water? Soap and water, soap and water. The chaos of this is great, though, because they're having this debate. And then Jim the Pill comes in, who looks like... A fucking, I don't know (laughs) what he looks like. He's wearing a bright blue shirt, yellow tie with black spots on it, and a green flat cap. He's got glasses that are almost kind of like aviator style. Looking like Alan Bennett in a Del Boy fancy dress costume. He kind of walks in and then sees the camera, does a little bit of a double take, doesn't look very comfortable. Meanwhile, Louis following Savile around going, wait, but do you use hand soap to clean your pants? Uncut Gems has nothing on the tension (laughs) in this scene. Savile introduces Louis to Jim the Pill. He is introduced as world famous and the piranha fish of all interviewers. Jim the Pill immediately looks quite nervous. He looks all over the shop. He doesn't know what's going on. Jimmy, Louis and Jay the P... They move into the living room. Louis already asking probing questions again. He's got someone to probe that isn't Savile now. So he asks Jim if they will be sharing a room on the cruise. Savile quickly jumps in. No, but Jim the Phil just casually says, 304L. I don't know whether they were sharing a room and Savile was just trying to deny it. And Jim the Phil's just not savvy enough to realise he should have maybe said something different at that moment. I like that he's learned his room number off by heart. He's quite excited. 
They sort of discuss the fact that Jim the Pill is coming on the cruise as a friend, but also someone who could lend a hand if Savile needed it. And he makes this big deal about saying, oh, if I was going to get my picture taken, I could take my coat off and hand it to Jim the Pill and he'd look after it for me. Big boy duties. Yeah, you could just give it to anyone, couldn't you? But then Jim the Pill sort of says, yeah, it's nice. I get to go along to things and I get to go to fancy cocktail parties and we go to events in the captain's quarters. And Louis immediately goes, late at night? Savile's really unhappy with that. And he's like, no. And then he sort of turns to Jim the Pill and goes, these people, I guess he means Louis and Will, are always lifting the toilet lid of life. Louis's laughing, skulking down further into his seat like a naughty schoolboy. Savile is fine when it's just him and Louis on their own. But when there's someone else thrown into the mix, it's something he can't control. It's like he's got two naughty grandsons now. And one is Jay the P. The three of them, this motley crew, jump on a train to Liverpool. We see Louis is reading the Daily Mail. Savile is having a little nap. And Jim the Pill is reading a paper. And we see a big photo of Blair there, really putting this in context. A different lifetime. Also the fact they're just travelling in like a normal train with lots of other people around I thought was interesting. First class. Didn't look that nice for first class. Savile wakes up from his little nap and they go through Jimmy's career to date 14 minutes into the documentary. So they talk about the fact that Savile did Jim Will Fix It for 20 years. Do you want to explain the concept of Jim Will Fix It? Yes, happily. So Jim Will Fix It was a show where young children would write into Jimmy Savile what could possibly go wrong? And he would fulfill their dreams and wishes. You wanted to be a jockey, Savile would arrange and the crew would arrange for you to have a day training with a horse. Kind of like make a wish, but they weren't dying. They were just <laughs> small children. And it usually probably wasn't that exciting. So he's done Jim Will Fix It for 20 years, Top of the Pops for 20 years. That's an absolutely staggering amount of time on primetime TV. I was trying to think who we have close to this now. Anton Deck, maybe the only kind of people who have that sort of longevity on TV. Maybe like Graham Norton? Yeah, exactly. Graham Norton would be kind of a similar sort of amount of time consistently on mainstream TV. But not really anything as cool as Top of the Pops was at the time. No, that really put into perspective for me how kind of ever-present this guy was, which is why maybe they feel they don't have to do this career introduction till 14 minutes into the documentary. So then Louis says, you used to be a wrestler, right? And Savile says, I still am. I'm feared in every girls' school in Britain, which with hindsight, again, is a horrible line. Louis labours on that, implying like that's a weird thing to say, even then. And Savile goes on a bit of a grump and he's like, oh, I don't know what they do down south, but where we're from, it's called a J-O-K-E. Yeah. They continue this roll call of all Jimmy's kind of achievements and accolades. He was an original DJ on Radio 1, again, showing how kind of ever-present he was in the BBC and the media. A doctorate of law from Leeds University, a fellowship in radiography and a papal knighthood. Yep. Yep. He was made a Knight Commander of St. Gregory the Great by Pope John Paul II for his charity work. It's one of the highest awards the Pope can bestow. Yep. There was that. Yes. Since this, the Catholic Church has disowned Savile. The BBC spoke to a Vatican official spokesman called Father Federico Lombardi. He says the current Pope at that time firmly condemns the horrible crimes of sexual abuse of minors, adding it considered the Savile revelations as very grave. But again, much like the knighthood, they're stuck. They're fucking stuck because you can't remove these things after someone dies. So it's there forever. It'll always be Papal Knight Jimmy to us. And Sir Jimmy to the British public as well. Maybe that's important that these things can never be removed because it shows there were issues. You can't just pretend it never happened. Exactly. 
So they get to Liverpool for the launch of this. It's actually the relaunch of this ship called Coronia. And we see the big ship. It looks like a big boat. There's loads of people there, members of the public, just to watch this thing get relaunched, which, like, I guess there wasn't that much else going on. I don't know. This is a PR coup. I've never seen anything like this. It's being launched with a panel of celebrities. I recognised two people. (laughs) Here's the roll call of stars, all right? We have Coronation Street's Vera Sugden, BBC journalist Michael Burke, who is seen in conversation with Savon and is asking him about his medals. And then we see John Prescott. Interestingly, doesn't say hello to Jimmy. Worlds collide when John Prescott kissed that lady from Coronation Street on the cheek, I feel like. <laughs> a meeting of minds. John Prescott was invited because Canard, the cruise liner brand, he was their most famous ex-steward. He had actually worked on the cruise ship. Oh, really? I found an article from 2000 and it says, Prescott goes down a storm on Coronia's day. That's where I had my medical examination when I joined the company, he recalled in a somewhat dewy-eyed manner. We need to unpack all of that. That's fucking weird. <laughs> Uh, we're gonna do like a side podcast about that so maybe this next bit is nice for louis because we basically see savile getting very defensive with someone else in the sort of similar manner that he has been with louis louis was like oh thank god it's not just me michael burke asks savile about his necklace i mean it's on a chain it's kind of like a medallion but it's more of a pendant looking thing he says oh that's a bit odd which savile clearly takes offense at a little bit but says well like me it's a wishbone young people know all about wishbones pause here did you go and look on urban dictionary to see what wishbones are (laughs) i didn't but can you inform me you did all the in-depth research and i went to look on urban dictionary i really would rather not tell you what it is i was lost in the biography of john prescott at this point i'm afraid (laughs) hopefully there was no wishboning going on savile's very defensive about the necklace thing and i don't know if it's maybe because burke kind of got up close and personal with him and was sort of like touching him touching his stuff but he really doesn't look happy with how that's gone down Louis hanging back as stated he was not invited on this cruise he stands slouched like your teenage cousin at an event there's fireworks going off it's a big deal again this is the biggest story of the year 2000 apparently screw that millennium shtick <laughs> so then the narration says i wasn't invited on the cruise Oh, he hadn't mentioned that louis but he's getting a tour of jimmy's suite before they set off and it's pretty nice i said it's 90s fresh prince of bel-air chic yeah really good shout jimmy's bragging that he has one of the only two penthouses in the whole place and then the klaxon goes off can mr theroux please exit the premises you're not fucking invited we're gonna throw you off the side of the ship if you don't leave have we made it clear we don't want you here so they say goodbye and jimmy says the filming has been a joy and a pleasure it's like you've made louis's life pretty miserable for the last few days but now you're claiming it is a joy and a pleasure i just feel like that's a very classic manipulation move absolutely but this is the best bit so the captain comes by louis asks him about jimmy being in the penthouse and ship captain admiral can't tell a lie immediately bursts the bubble he says no that's not the penthouse it's not the main penthouse are up the next day Oh my god, this is the best bit of the documentary. I mean, it's even better than Jim the Pill. And again, this is exactly like one of those mockumentary TV shows, apart from it's happening in real life, where everyone just kind of looks at each other. (laughs) And then Savile tries to bounce back and sort of just goes, this is fine for me, happy in the servants' quarters. I'm in the servants' quarters. Louis gets the last laugh here, the final word over Savile, which I think he was desperate for. Helped along by that captain. 
So as the ship sails off, Louis says that he's not sure whether they're bringing out the best in each other. No shit. And he says that he's finding him quite irritating and that Jimmy is potentially using his pattern to deflect from his questions. But will things improve? I like the honesty and just being like he's really pissing me off. Following Jimmy's celebrity cruise with Vera Sugden and John Prescott and Michael Burke, BBC News presenter. And Jim the Pill. <laughs> and Jim the Pill. If Jimmy's in the servant quarters, where's Jim the Pill? Bailing out in the bottom of the ship. <laughs> Shoveling coal in it to keep it going, like in the Titanic. We're back together, we got the band back together, and it's a day trip to Doncaster. Again, it looks so cold all the time. There's proper mountains of snow on the streets, and it could be Vancouver in winter, but it leads to Doncaster. Louis is doing his bit, doing some heavy lifting of an enormous soft toy teddy bear that is bigger than an adult. He's putting it into the boot of a car, but they're not just going to drive to Doncaster with the bear, which would be probably the easiest thing to do. The next shot is of Louis and Jimmy Savile carrying the giant bear along a train platform. And then Louis wrestling it into a seat on the train. First class, don't you know? First class seat for a soft toy bear. Louis is asking Jimmy about his decision why he wanted to give away this giant bear. As he's talking to him, Jimmy's approached for an autograph. There's a middle-aged woman. She's clearly excited to see him. And he says, oh, I do it for the people, for the positive energy. When I give this woman the autograph, she will give me a smile. And he hands it back to her and she does. And then he says, oh, and also a kiss. And then they have this weird kiss on the lips. (laughs) So horrible. Good Lord. Then we get the narration where Louis explains that Jimmy is saying he's raised over £40 million for charity over the years. Difficult figure to quantify. I found an article from The Express 10 years later, just after he dies, which says that he raised £45 million in total. But that's kind of 10 years after he was originally saying he did 40. So I don't know whether Savile's kind of plucked this number out of his head and then kind of just sticks with it. I don't doubt that he raised a lot of money for charity. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't know how accurate that figure is. Only Savile seems to know. Yeah, he doesn't really show his working. Louis makes a point of saying that at this charity auction, they are doing things on Jimmy's terms to try and win his trust. So him and Will have stopped trying to piss him off and they've decided they're just going to do what Jimmy wants them to do. So they stand by while he gets photos taken with this giant bear and with, I guess, a representative from the hospice that they're raising money for. And there's loads of different shots and Jimmy puts a Santa hat on at one point. He's always got his cigar. He likes to give these sort of inspirational quotes and at one point he says, says those who bring sunshine into the lives of others cannot keep it from their own live laugh love is this jimmy's penance how he's trying to gain happiness away from all the terrible things he's doing maybe yeah i mean he doesn't seem like a very happy person they leave the hospital and they go to jimmy's favorite local restaurant in leeds which is called adriano's flying pizza there's a lot of people there and savile is holding court he's delivering a cake to a woman while the table sings happy birthday and then he delivers this kind of really long lingering kiss on her hand apparently a bit of a trademark from all the accounts of savile he does this all the time grim Once he's kind of done his rounds, he sits down with Louis, who's now wearing a black turtleneck, I think, by the way, just to add to the the visual. Night mode. A tactical turtleneck. And they kind of broach the topic of the possibility of Savile retiring. Louis says, oh, it'll be a shame that you might soon retire and won't be doing all these things for other people. And Savile says, me and the Pope could never retire. So that's where he's at. He thinks he's in line with the Pope. This is pre-Pope John Ratzinger, who did actually retire. So just goes to show you. 
Savile's kind of talking about the power of the fact that there's him there and there's the camera there. He says it makes people happy. It's something terrific for them. It's a marvellous experience for them. And it's this experience which Savile has often exploited, this kind of like excitement of show business. And we see this in other situations with popular figures who end up turning out to be sexual offenders, that they do use this kind of power of celebrity and the power of the stardom to confuse people, to bamboozle them. It's like a, like a sensory overload almost. But interestingly, the Flying Pizza restaurant lives on. Oh, good. It's uh, Changed Hands, the original owner, who came over from Italy in 1959 and started the restaurant in the 70s. He sold the restaurant in 2002 to a man called Carlo Di Stefano, who now runs the family business with his son. So has it still got the same name? It's now called Carlo's Flying Pizza. And by all accounts, good pizza in Leeds. If you're listening from Leeds, let us know if that's true. Okay, so after dinner, Louis and Will are staying with Jimmy Savile at his flat and they get home just, you know, lads after a night out, kick back, watch some telly. I don't know what they're watching. Is it a nature documentary? They flick to a nature documentary. I don't know what they're watching beforehand. Very quickly, Louis gets really tired and decides he's going to go to bed. Probably lifting that bear was a lot for him. But then Will, the director, stays up with Savile and Louis kind of pops in in the voiceover, editing Louis, and he's like, Although I'd gone to bed, Will stayed up late with Jimmy. He began talking about his work as a dance hall manager in the 50s. I think Will had that little camera that we were talking about before just rolling. The shot looks like it's sort of on a table maybe or like on the arm of a chair and he doesn't move it or anything. So necessarily, you know, Savile isn't aware that this camera's still rolling and he's sort of leaning forward and he's talking to Will, but I feel like he's not even really looking at him for most of it. Savile saying while he was managing these dance halls in the 50s in Glasgow, he invented zero tolerance. He said he wouldn't stand for any nonsense and he was always in trouble with the law, but he couldn't care less about that. Will is asking him questions and saying, were you ejecting people who were mucking about? Savile says, No, I never threw anybody out. I tied him up and put him down in the bloody boiler house until I was ready for him. At two o'clock in the fucking morning. The plead to get out. Nobody ever got slung out of my place. We tie him up and then we come back and, uh, and I was the judge, jury and executioner. Even when this episode came out, this was the most controversial scene because this showed a side of Jimmy Savile that nobody had ever seen before. Well, at least hadn't been in the public eye. Jimmy would say to the police, your daughter comes in here, she's 16. She's not meant to come to town, but she does and she comes here. I'd assume you'd like me to look after her. If you don't want me to, tell me. I'll let those dirty slags do what they want to her. Which in the context of everything we know now is shocking. Really is. That whole concept of I have young women in my protection and if I don't look after them, who will? When? What we know of how he was treating children makes that quote even worse. So he says he's never altered and he still has zero tolerance. He comes back to this and then the camera just kind of fades to black. Do you think this was planned in terms of Louis and Will deliberated and think that Jimmy would be far more relaxed talking to Will than he would to Louis? Maybe, because I think he probably associates Louis with the camera being on. And if he's not there, then that's not as much of a concern. Maybe they'd noticed during the filming that Jimmy was far more open to Will than he was to Louis. You don't know what Will might have said to Savile to start that conversation off. We don't see the start of that. We don't know how much he pushed it. 
Fades are black and then it's early morning and there's a train to Scarborough to be caught. So many trains in this episode. I know, good for the environment, I suppose. Yeah. So Jimmy wakes up Louis, who we know is very much not a morning person, at an early hour. You can hear him groaning through the door. And again, Louis speaks directly to Will on camera. Clearly, Will is now a character in this documentary as much as Louis is. Louis sort of reflects on the zero tolerance footage from the night before. That's playing on his mind a little bit, but they are getting this train to Scarborough. And the idea of this part of the trip is that they're going to learn about Savile's relationship with his mother, a woman who he called the Duchess, and she died in 1973, so quite a good while ago now. Do you have a nickname for your mother? Uh, Mum. <laughs> Me too, weird. <laughs> Imagine referring to your mum as the Duchess, or Dutch as he refers to her on occasions. This is like the second Archer reference now. <laughs> Isn't that his nickname too? So they travel together to Scarborough where Savile lived with his mum in a flat for 16 years. They lived together. He still owns that flat and it's still there kind of preserved. And I think they sort of start out on the balcony, do they? Just looking at the view. Louis again wants to ask, oh, so you lived with your mum for 16 years. Did that not cramp your style? You were young. Did you not want to bring women home? And Savile says, and this is like word for word, he says his mother would have killed any girl that he brought home. And he points across and he says, oh, there's a caravan park over there. And I had a caravan there. A caravan. He puts the emphasis in a really weird place. A caravan. And that was the love nest. Which we know was one of his most predatory spots. We cut to a photo of Jimmy's mum on the wall and Louis notices the walls are suede. This is a far more extravagant place than the Leeds part. It's quite chic, isn't it? I mean, it's unusual and not really to my taste, but at least the living room feels quite nicely done. Yeah, as a memorial to your dead mum, it's up there. Suede walls, though. Imagine you spill some coffee on that. Nightmare. So we go into her bedroom and it's still kitted out as probably she left it. There's a photo of Jimmy and his mum on the dressing table. He's on the floor in his dressing gown. It was clearly some sort of promotional shot for a magazine or something, I assume. And then we see that Jimmy still has his mum's clothes. He opens the wardrobe and there are all these suits and dresses in there, which apparently he has cleaned once a year. And he says they make better souvenirs than photographs. Shocker, Jimmy Savile's <laughs> emotional relationships are completely fucked. But this is not healthy, I would say, to have your deceased mum's clothes. 25 years after she's died at this point, still cleaned regularly, still in the cupboard, still a room as a kind of shrine to her. There's something really painfully tragic about all that. Not to excuse anything Savile did, but it's a really tragic scene. On a human level, definitely. Louis sort of says, I'm sorry if I upset you. I can sense that this is kind of emotional. Maybe this whole room, this whole place is quite emotional for you. And Savlin says, no. And he starts saying some weird stuff here where he's like, it's not emotional. It's friendship. It's happy and lovely, not emotional, which spoken exactly like someone who does not understand the concept of emotions. And he himself says, it's not morbid. <laughs> I'm clearly thinking everyone is thinking this is morbid. And Louis says, I never said anything about it being morbid. We continue to then look through a number of photo albums that Savile has there. And there's photos of Jimmy with a young woman. Louis strikes the conversation. Have you ever been linked to anyone in the press? Jimmy instantly says, no. Louis, your love life has never been discussed in any way, has it? Why do you think that is? Savile, ask the press. So it feels like Louis is touching on something here. His statement till now has always been he didn't know anything. There have been rumours, but nothing ever taken seriously. 
they basically get to the, the point of Louis saying, oh, you're being discreet or you've always been discreet with your relationships. And Savile really doesn't like that word. And he says, discreet means you're trying to hide something. I don't want to hide anything. Too much protesting, I think, probably here. And then he says that he's never had a girlfriend, which Louis sort of freaks out about that idea. And he says he's just had friends who are girls. So the camera then shows again this shrine to his mum. And without context of everything that we know, it's morbid. With it, it's even worse, I suppose. Also, do you know what would piss me off? If you were keeping my room as a shrine and then you decided to store like the stepladder and a clothes dryer in there, <laughs> it's not a junk room. If you're going to do the shrine, do it properly. They go to the chippy for dinner. Standard. When in Scarborough. Yeah. And they're sort of standing at the counter eating them and then Savile just goes, I get these for nothing, by the way, because my photo's on the wall, which right enough is there's a framed photo of them on the wall. Where do you think that photo is buried now? Somewhere deep in the stock room at the fish pan, famous fish and chips in Scarborough, I imagine. Probably just pinged it into the sea, didn't they? <laughs> get rid of it. A young woman starts talking to Jimmy Savile. As we were saying, I mean, for people of a certain generation, they would be quite impressed and want to speak to him. I'd say she looks like she's sort of mid-twenties, maybe a little bit older. Yep. And she says, oh, she's to write to him all the time because of Jim will fix it when she was a small child. And then he says to her... If you'd have put, P.S., if ever I meet you, I know I shall fall madly in love with you, that would have been okay. And I read the letter, I thought, well, if that's all she thinks of me, she won't even fall in love with me. So I'll it in the bin. It's such an odd line. Yeah, and this poor woman's just a bit like, what? It's quite interesting because I feel like he sort of prides himself on always being on and always saying the right thing, and obviously he doesn't, but especially here, he really didn't. Concentrating on his chips. (laughs) (laughs) So they go back to the flat and Louis settles in in the Duchess's room. I don't know whether we said this, but he has been bestowed the honour that he will sleep in Savile's mum's bed. This was discussed on the train earlier. The bedding has JS in a logo, like Like a a really shit Superman. Yeah, I feel like they pointedly hid that when we were in the room and then they show that this time. So then Louis and Will speak and Louis jokes, this isn't the bed she died in, is it? She's quite gallows humour. They're kind of getting into bed and then the narration over the top from Louis says, to me, it seems that no woman has ever lived up to his mother. 30 years on from her death, she's still the most important person in his life. Good theory, Louis, but it's not (laughs) quite what the reality is. Where do you think Will slept that night? Do you think he got to go and sleep in a hotel and Louis had to sleep in the horror room? He was in the cupboard in one of the dresses. This is an exhausting shoot, I feel like. The next morning, they're up early to go to Jimmy's Highland Retreat, which is in Glencoe. So they're getting the train again. So you'd have to get the train, what, to Edinburgh, then change? Alex, I looked this up. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) You have to go from Scarborough to York, York to Edinburgh, Edinburgh to Annisland, and then you'd have to get a car from there to Glencoe. So even the train bit of that journey is five hours. And according to trainline.com, that currently is £126. Not first class. How much for a teddy bear in first class? (laughs) So the next shot is the alarming. Louis and the voiceover is like, right, we're going to go to Glencoe. And then it's just this shot of Savile hoiking his feet up into the sink and washing them. What? I completely miss this. I guess this ties up with his claims he washes his underpants every night. Just get in the shower. Just have a proper wash. Like, don't wash bits of you. (laughs) Oh, that's grim. It's so horrible. (laughs) So after Savile's (laughs) doused down his feet 
They hop back on the train. Well, they go to the train station first and people in a nearby train on another platform have spotted that it's Savile. He's talking about his hair and he says, this is why I keep it long. Companies pay billions for this sort of product recognition and people notice him instantly. And then they have such an unnecessary bicker. Louis says, oh, that's why you bleach it, right? And he's like, no, I don't bleach it. I have all the colour taken out of it. And again, he's doing that thing where he's like, you're not doing a good job because people won't understand what you mean if you say bleach. Just the worst. (laughs) (laughs) What a twat. They pop on the train. They're playing some Scrabble. I tried to look at the Scrabble board to see if there was any clues about Jimmy's soul in there. It's such a tame selection of words that really neither of them are trying. (laughs) So we've got zit, high school, taut, shone, rat, bland, and poem. Nothing really unearthed. I wrote down yum as well. (laughs) Jesus, this is a rubbish game. And then suddenly they're in Glencoe. Lovely shots of this house that Jimmy Savile owned and then mountains in the background. And Louis says, God, it's almost like Richmond Park. Savile then immediately makes fun of him for being a townie. I had to begrudgingly agree with Savile on this point. So they seem to be getting on better as they go on this walk. Jimmy's dressed like he's about to hike up Kilimanjaro. Louis looks like Widnell from Widnell and I. He really does. (laughs) He's got like a hat pulled down and his little leather jacket done up as high as it can go and then he's in a jumper and shirt combination he looks like a child from narnia whereas like savile's got these fucking walking sticks and everything louis broaches the subject of the different sides of jimmy and savile sort of starts off claiming that he's the same camera on or off you know he is who he is Louis says, so if that's true, then all of the footage that we've collected of you during this filming process, you're happy for us to show, right? And Savile says yes. And then Louis says, well, the thing is, after I went to bed the other night and you were talking about your zero tolerance policy, we were actually filming that and we just wanted to check that you knew. And then immediately, Jimmy Savile goes, yeah, well, when I said that I tied people up. That really is a figure of speech, isn't it? It's rather like saying... uh, Oh, I could kill him. You couldn't kill him at all. It's a figure of speech. The camera is hanging back. And again, I don't know whether this is a slight ploy. Do you know you're mic'd up? Do you know this is being recorded? But the fact that Louis kind of gives him this chance to say, oh, don't include that footage, is interesting. He's not given anyone else that courtesy so far. What if he'd said no? Would it just not have gone in? Exactly. What would have happened then? But maybe they're just trying to catch him out as well. I don't know. Maybe they really wanted him to like explode on camera and, you know, give them something even better. The next day in Glencoe, Savile goes out for a run and hurts his ankle and claims that it's broken. And he comes back and Louis sort of says, well, it is at least swollen. It does seem like you're going to need to go to hospital. Has he tried washing it in a basin yet? <laughs> So he gets his phone and phones his Fort William team, he says. Louis says it's not clear who the team are, but Savile says something about how he's got a Glencoe team and a Fort William team because the hospital's in Fort William, which is a little way away. He can't get hold of his team and he says something like, oh, when I need them, they are engage. Mi croave. <laughs> <laughs> and then while they're kind of waiting for people to get back to him, Jimmy decides to phone the hospital on behalf of the BBC documentary team to clear them to be allowed to come in and film. And he can hear him speaking to someone on the phone and saying, listen, can we bring the cameras in? They're just going to film me, maybe getting a cast on. And remember that I've given you a lot of machines. Interesting that he do this for Louis after the conversation about the zero tolerance footage maybe he just thinks if you get enough of the footage that he wants them to have then it cancels it out or he's doing enough favors for them that they'll treat him nicely so they go to the hospital and then when they're in the waiting room this guy called anthony turns up this is jimmy's fort william team hashtag fort william team (laughs) 
He's got an anorak on, so at least he's prepared for the weather. He looks very train spotter, doesn't he? Not train spotting, not heroin chic, train spotter. He does. He's got the same kind of aviator glasses as Jim the Pill. I think those were probably in at that point for men of that age. Louis speaks to Anthony while Jimmy Savile's getting checked out and giving the doctors all his boring patter while they're just trying to do their job. Anthony tells Louis he's a press photographer for the national papers. How did you know Jimmy was going to be here? Well, we got somebody here and he was sent down what had happened. He called you up? Yeah. Yeah. So basically when, when Jimmy Savile says he needs to tell his Fort William team everything, what he's saying is, if he thinks there's anything that he does that might remotely get into a newspaper, he then wants to phone a press photographer and tell him so he can try and sell the pictures to the paper. Louis confronts Savile about this and says, why did you phone Anthony? What's the benefit of getting in the paper because you've hurt your ankle? And Savile claims it's not about that. He's known Anthony for a long time, since he was born. Louis says, I think you are doing this because you want to be in the paper. And then he even sings a little, I don't believe it song, which is really just like insanity. I don't believe it. Oh my goodness. What an untrustworthy person. I don't believe it. While this is all going on, the doctors and nurses are going about their business, scanning Jimmy's leg and making sure he's okay. And he has actually fractured his leg. That's true. But the instinct was, what press attention can I get from this? Yeah. Sympathy. Great heroic runner. Advertisement for the upcoming documentary. Anthony is snapping away and then they pose outside. With the cast and thumbs up in the wheelchair. It's so odd. Did Savile go out early in the morning in misery style, break his ankle with a sledgehammer <laughs> just for the press attention? I mean, you'd do like a finger or something, wouldn't you? <laughs> Not an ankle. <laughs> There's a lot of bones in there. They get back from the hospital and they go to this hotel in Glencoe and Louis says that it's their last night. So they've gone to this hotel for supper. It is desolate. There is no one else in the whole place. So again, the camera is at an angle that makes you feel that maybe Savile doesn't know he's being filmed, but actually we get to that later. And Jimmy is again lecturing Louis. You're aggressive and you're abrasive. You need to learn to utilise the other side of your personality, which is the pussycat side. And he says you can do it on purpose. You can be abrasive and then you can be nice. He's trying to teach him to be a manipulator. Be like Savile. Do what exactly what I've been doing this whole episode. At this point, there's also a close-up of a framed photo of Jimmy Savile with a small child. Louis goes off to get a Guinness. He's got Guinness envy. As you see, Savile sup away on his. And then Jimmy starts speaking to the abandoned camera. He says he wants this story to be inspirational. If Jim can do it, I can do it, essentially. If Jim can break his leg and phone a photographer, <laughs> I can do it too. They've all had a bit too much to drink. So the crew have booked some rooms in the hotel in Glencoe. It's weird that they could get the book in. It looks so busy down there. I know. We'll just take a floor each, actually. But Savile wants to keep that element in control. So he says he'll sleep in his camper van outside. So we see him literally hobbling because of his broken ankle out to this camper van. It looks so, so cold out there. And Louis follows him out and says, come on, what are you doing? This seems crazy. Savile says he'll just sleep in all of his clothes, including his shoes and his hat. And then he tells the story that he used to sleep in a caravan outside Broadcasting House. And Louis asks, but why? And Savile doesn't answer. We are so close, yet we are so far once again. 
do you think it was just his habit to have you know an escape route i think it's a control thing i think he doesn't want to owe louis anything or owe them anything so he doesn't take the favor and we see this in the morning after savile had boasted he'd be up at six but it's 8 30 and he still hasn't shown and a very hungover louis goes out to the car and clearly very hungover and then jimmy opens the window fires up his cigar he's hobbling out the car with a bag over his shoulder and the crutches, and he nearly slips. He nearly takes a fall again. And Louis asking him, oh, I'll take the bag, I'll take the bag. And he's saying, no, no, you can't break the routine. You can't break the routine. But it's just clearly he doesn't want to give up any sense of control to Louis and the crew at all. Even though he admits that it got down to minus eight Celsius in the camper van overnight. Minus eight. Oh my Christ. Freezing. And then when Louis sort of says, this is mad. Why would you do this? Savile replies, this is living. You don't understand and you won't understand until it's too late. So we head back to Jimmy's Glencoe pad. He's flicking through the express and he finds his story. The headline being veteran TV presenter breaks his ankle. Hospital fixed it for jogging Sir Jimmy. And we also find that it went in the daily record as well, which the article I actually found. It says mountain fall halts marathon man. Hospital fixes it after Jimmy breaks ankle. Derivative, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no offence to the people of the Daily Record. The 72-year-old cigar-smoking star stumbled into a pothole behind his Glencoe home during a training run. He ended up with his left leg in plaster at Balfour Hospital in Fort William, filmed by a BBC camera crew making a documentary on his Scottish hideaway. The former host of hit TV show Jim Will Fix It said, I break the same ankle 20 years ago, pretty much in the same location, when I was here as a visitor. This time, my foot went down into a hole. He definitely smashed it with a mallet. <laughs> Radiographer Sheila McLennan fixed it for Jimmy by identifying the broken bone and said that despite the pain, he was still in good form. She added, he said the broken foot was a pain because he couldn't chase the girls. Good Lord. Hiding in plain sight as usual. One story, I think in a newspaper we sadly didn't see which title it was, claims that the documentary being made by Louis and his team is about Jimmy Savile's Highland lifestyle. Louis says to Jimmy, did you tell them that? And then Louis asks how getting in the papers makes Savile feel. And then he goes, serious answers, please. In this totally weary voice. Like he's like a primary school teacher. And then Savile says, he's come to expect it. It will make people smile and it's very, very pleasant. Why do we feel Savile did it? I feel like for him it was just a game. It was just something he could potentially pull the strings and show his power. Yeah, just still wants to be relevant and wants people to care and he was showing off for Louis maybe. Yeah, I think it's that. I think he's showing off for the crew. Look how I can kind of orchestrate events still. Okay, so this is where we get to... A scene, an absolute scene. So they're kind of driving back through Glencoe. They're leaving the property. Again, Glencoe looks absolutely stunning. And Louis is asking about Savile's relationship with the press. And so he says, why is it that you say to the press that you hate children? I've seen you with kids and you clearly enjoy their company and have a good rapport with them. Savile says, obviously I don't hate them. And Louis asks, so why would you say that? Jimmy says, because we live in a very funny world. And it's easy for me as a single man to say I don't like children because that puts a lot of salacious tabloid people off the hunt Louis says you're basically saying so tabloids don't pursue this whole is he isn't he a paedophile line so clearly this exists Savile confirms it he says yep one thing he says is how do they know whether I am or not and then it takes him like a few more sentences to then go obviously I'm not a paedophile which obviously we now know is 
fucking lie. But wouldn't your first reaction be to immediately say, I'm not a pedophile? Louis then says, does this not make it sound more suspicious in a way? Jimmy says, oh, that's my policy and it's work to dream. It dies there, that conversation topic with Jimmy just randomly spurting out a ho, ho, ho. It almost feels like Louis is a detective who is like one clue behind every step. And it's like Savile knows that he is, you know, nearly talking about it, but not. It's quite twisted. It feels like he's basically like, I'm almost hinting at this stuff here. You're not picking up on it in the right way. And it does feel like Louis is kind of on the edges of it constantly. Mm -hmm. Why do you camp outside BBC in a camper van? Why have you never had a serious relationship that anyone knows about? Why did you keep a caravan a stone's throw from your mother's house? Isn't it more suspicious that you say you hate children deflect the fact that you spend so much time with them? He's always just like on the edge of what the whole thing was but never quite gets there. They then talk about the fact that in interviews in the past, Jimmy Savile has said that he doesn't have emotions. And Savile just replies, it's easier. Truth is, I'm very good at masking them. So I don't know what to think about why this is added in at the time. Is this meant to make us feel sorry for Savile? I think so, because he looks quite sad when he says it. Boo-hoo, this man is hiding so much pain under his tracksuit. He yawns quite a lot here, which I think is a sign of being uncomfortable and trying to sort of dodge responding to things. He might be tired after sleeping in a camper van overnight at minus eight degrees. Would you like to know what happened to his Highland cottage? Yes, please. So an article from the Daily Record, Jimmy's paper of choice, from this year said that Savile's property has been purchased by a tycoon and it is likely to be demolished. He lived in the property from 1998 until his death in 2011. It's since been repeatedly vandalised with slogans. There's a famous picture of the words Jimmy the Beast written on the side of the building. Following Savile's death in 2011, the two-bedroom bungalow was put up for auction and the buyer intended to live there. However, the work to renovate it never happened. It's since been bought by a retail tycoon called Harris Aslam, who now wants to essentially demolish it and build a whole new property in that spot. More than 20 years after Louis danced around the right questions, this footage has been back on screens recently in a gripping Netflix documentary that you may have already seen called Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. It's a mixture of archive footage and new interviews with sexual abuse victims, journalists and more people who knew and worked with Savile. I spoke to its director, Rowan Deakin, to find out more about picking up where Louis left off. My name's Rowan Deacon. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm not Louis Theroux. I've mainly made documentaries about sort of quite emotionally complex issues or issues which need complicating. So, so I've made a film about um, soldiers in Afghanistan called Our War, which was filmed by the soldiers themselves with their little head cams. I made a documentary film called How to Die, Simon's Choice, which was about a man deciding whether or not he should go and end his life in a Swiss suicide clinic. Just before this, I made a film about a woman called Sally Challen, who killed her husband with a hammer and was put in prison for murder and then appealed against the conviction on the basis that he had sort of emotionally abused her, which which was a really interesting legal case about kind of gender and madness. So I guess emotionally complex, interesting human stories. Obviously, your latest documentary, incredible timing for this podcast to be coming out around now, was called Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. All the interviews that you had, all the footage that you had and everything, that was obviously a long project. So can you tell us about how long that took to pull together and where the original idea sort of came about from? 
Yeah, so no, it wasn't one project. I think it was my longest project. 72 Films, who's the production company, they came to me in January 2020 and said, Netflix are doing Savile. I sort of just went, oh God, this can't be good. But I was also intrigued. You can't underestimate what a kind of enormous story it is and its reverberations. I thought that in itself was interesting that it gathered such a emotionally diverse reaction from people. One of my reservations was there's been so many documentaries made about Jimmy Savile. You know, it's well-worn territory in this country. So, you know, obviously Louis, Louis' original film and then Louis' 2016 film. And around the same time, a filmmaker called Ollie Lambert made a film called The Abused, which was an extraordinary sort of testimony film about the legacy of child abuse and Savile's victims. So I sort of felt like very important films had already been made. And then there's kind of like a million Channel 5 docs that seem to always be on. And then I read Dan Davis's book, In Plain Sight. If you haven't read, it's amazing. It's extraordinarily brilliant biography of Savile. Incredibly meticulous, covers everything. I read that very quickly and just was like, there's kind of detail here that as filmmakers we can get into because the archive exists. And I knew from actually speaking to another filmmaker that the archive was all embargoed after the revelations about Savile came out. So it was like all under lock and key. It was like, this must never be seen again. I was like, we have to get the archive. And then lockdown happened. I agreed to do it the week before lockdown, actually. So that was the beginning of 2020. We had an amazing archive producer called Peter Scott. He's the unsung hero of this project. So me and him, lockdown started and we just started pestering all of the archive houses. So it wasn't just the BBC. The BBC had a lot of the archive, but he was everywhere for 50 years. The feeling from the BBC was that this archive may contain survivors. Their line was the broadcasting of it will be difficult for survivors. So they had a sort of moral line on it, which I understood. And actually, I think Ollie Lambert had decided in his film not to show a frame of Savile. And I sort of got that emotional response. But I also sort of felt like if we did it responsibly, actually within that helps us dispel some of the myths that have kind of grown around Savile's story about, oh, I always hated the man. I mean, that's the thing that everybody says is I always hated him. We said to the BBC, it took us six months, but we persuaded them. I think partly because they were making a drama, they're doing the Steve Coogan drama. So I think that maybe they felt like, you know, we can't be seen to be prohibiting other broadcasters trying to do this story as well. I genuinely don't know why they said yes, but they did trust us as filmmakers. I think they knew that we weren't going to do something irresponsible. And they also felt ultimately, and I think rightly, that you have to be transparent about these things. We had to show every frame of archive to the BBC that we were using. So it wasn't just like, there you go. And then once the BBC said yes, then ITV did, then Channel 4 did, and then all of the smaller archive houses did. So we ended up with about, I think we ingested like 750 hours of Savile. So how on earth do you go about editing that into what is like a very concise narrative? We started editing in the July and what we did is we just went through it chronologically. Me and Ben Brown, the editor, did big up to Ben Brown, who's an amazing film editor. We knew we were going to tell the story chronologically because we wanted the audience to experience it without hindsight. I mean, I know they have hindsight, but historically accurately, if that makes sense. So we watched it chronologically and it just took months. Ben kept really, really meticulous notes of everything. We knew that the archive was the clay and that our interviewees needed to be in some way to the archive not all of them are but most of them came from the archive I think our contact list was like 400 people we just thought we'll ring everybody and then if they connected to the archive we were like brilliant they got a double tick I found myself laughing along with stuff that he was saying and then I was like oh god what are you doing it's Jimmy Savile yeah, that's really good to hear weirdly we deliberately tried to make him 
likable yeah likable in parts and I think you're supposed to smile at the Jim will fix it section it's heartwarming the innocence of it is both kind of beautiful and obviously with hindsight deeply traumatizing we wanted people to fall under his spell again in order to understand the complexities of how grooming works our knowledge about him has kind of warped our memory about what we did used to think the archive just didn't bear that out and that was why it was so revelatory to me and why I thought it was the way that we had to restore the story to its kind of historical truth. The film Casablanca, the first half the audience knows what's going on, but the characters don't. And the second half, the characters know what's going on and the audience doesn't. And I think we were thinking something around that. We were like, right, by film two, we have to be absolutely, I think there's a card at the beginning that just basically says this guy did all these awful things so that no one's under any illusion anymore. We're, we're sort of in a different relationship with the audience. Some of the archive footage is like big group shots and some of the people in the shots, their faces are blurred. Was that protecting victims or? Yeah, basically. So the archive compliance, as it's called, deciding what archive we can and can't show and what faces we can and can't show was handled by the producer, Katie, and was the most complex set of decisions. Every shot of Savile that we had, we had to source all the reports to find out if there had been any allegations of abuse in that place around that time. And if there had, we had to blur people that were closest to him, literally the most physically closest to him, because we know that he would randomly assault people and children. Others, we actually had to track down the people to clear them. But we, the decision was made that if they're just broadly in the background and there were no allegations of abuse at that site, it was okay. Have you had any criticism about the documentary and how would you sort of respond to criticism? Of course, of course, I was braced when it went out for lots of reasons. One, because it's a story that I think we all have a very strong view on. So I knew that we weren't going to please everyone. We worked with a lot of survivors who are both on screen and off screen and with organisations who support survivors or advocate for them or work with survivors of sexual abuse about how we should tell those sorts of stories in the media. So we kind of worked with them from the outset and I guess consulted with them about, you know, how, how do we do this in a way that's sort of responsible and we can learn from that but also that puts Jimmy Savile into it you know doesn't just go let's not look there and I was relieved that their responses were really positive that they felt that it articulated the complexities of grooming that they had experienced both the survivors of Savile but also survivors of sexual abuse generally once I'd had their feedback I was like okay from everybody else it didn't matter as much and actually I can't speak for all survivors there will be survivors who could not bear to watch it and I appreciate that I appreciate that it's not a watch for everybody it's a viewing choice that some people will not want to make but that broadly people felt that there were lessons and learning within it but yes, the criticism came from all quarters. So I think the one that I'm most sensitive to is the idea that it doesn't do enough contextualising because I actually wanted to do more contextualising. We had a couple of scenes in there about historic attitudes to child sexual abuse, about stranger danger that helped explain what our attitudes towards sex abuse was back in the light 80s. I fought for keeping them and lost the battle. So I'm very sensitive to that criticism. I've read some of that and I kind of go, yeah, I kind of agree. There's been criticism that it doesn't kind of do the conspiracy theory. <laughs> and I think that's interesting because I think that and that was expected and I think the reason why people think that there must be a conspiracy theory is because it's an easier explanation the film tries to set out like I think at least eight of the ten reasons so there's probably like lots of reasons why this happened and I think the film does a pretty good job at 
getting most of them. But that isn't enough, I think, because it asks us to ask really hard questions about us as a society. And it's easier to go, oh, well, there was a ring of paedophiles working at the BBC and in the royal family who knew what he was doing. I mean, you know, there may well have been minders or a driver here. There, there may well have been. We didn't find evidence, but I'm sure there was more than just Savile that knew what he was up to. But I think that our attitudes towards young women and consent and what is abuse and what is coercive. And I think they've changed hugely in the last 10 years. And partly as a response to Savile. And I think that the film is asking us to look at how we didn't always have that awareness. And they turned a blind eye to stuff that they didn't even think was abuse. And I think in turning a blind eye to stuff that they didn't think was abuse, they didn't see stuff that even then they would have seen as abuse. People have criticised Louis and said, oh, you were part of the problem. But the fact that he's sort of continued to talk about it, gone back and explored it, still will openly talk about it. He's not become one of those people that's like, oh, God, yeah, I always knew there was something wrong with him. And that's maybe quite rare. It totally. When we started looking at the archive and contextualising the Captain Hindsight people, the people after the fact who say publicly, well, I always knew, I always knew. And it was striking that Louis was one of the few voices that wasn't saying that. The Selena Scott interview we did was an interesting one because she said, I hated the man, I hated the man. And then actually we showed her the archive and it revealed a much more complex analysis of the idea, I hated him. It was actually more complicated than that. She did find him strange, but what she was horrified by was the fact that she also played along with his game. And I think that probably that's Louis' thing as well, that he also got sucked into his game. And I think we all did. Louis asking him outright about the paedophile rumours and Jimmy giving a particularly bewildering answer. When I asked Louis about that question, because obviously now once all the things came out, it was like, oh my God, Louis Thoreau asked him in 1999. Louis said, well, I nearly didn't put that bit in. I went and looked at the reviews of Louis' 99 film. None of them were like, ah, he's got the goods on tap. They were all, there were some of them were even a bit like, well, he's being a bit harsh on this nice old man. I think that people forget the context in which these things aired. You know, in a way, Louis was being sort of cheeky, even asking it. Of all of the archive that we looked at, obviously, because it was a documentary, it wasn't sort of shiny floor show. It revealed a bit more of the man's complexity. But I think Louis is quite a compassionate filmmaker. And I think in a funny way, it was more of a loving film than not. You mentioned the TV drama. How do you feel about them making a drama about this? I think it will be really interesting to see how they do it as a drama because I think they will have more freedom to tell what I would call the back of house story, which is like what was going on behind the scenes. Like the limitation that we had was that we couldn't show the behind the scenes stuff because all we had was the kind of facade. So we were a source of exploring how he groomed a nation rather than really being able to dramatise what went on behind the scenes, if that makes sense. Other than, of course, our victim's testimony in film two, which I think is the moment that the kind of mask fully drops and you realise the true, true horror of it. Drama does something so different that I think there'll be companion pieces. I'm really interested in seeing it. Really interested to see how they tackle it because it's the bloody hard subject. They cut from that moment that could have been, I suppose, to back in the lift going up to Jimmy's Leeds penthouse. Louis narrates over the top. To my surprise, I was sorry to say goodbye. I had a newfound respect for Jimmy, and although I still didn't feel that close to him, I thought that probably made me no different to anyone else in his life. Where did this newfound respect develop? Did he feel like he had to say that? 
Louis wants a Jim will fix it badge as a parting gift. He's holding one that's in Savile's house and Savile says Louis won't walk out of his life that easily. He's not just, you know, giving him a medal and shaking his hand and saying goodbye. If Louis ever needs anything, which he might, phone up old Uncle Jimmy and he'll sort it out for you. One day you may need someone. You don't at the moment because you're top of the tree, but remember who's going to look after you when you come back down is essentially what Savile is saying. It gave me shivers. They say goodbye over the end credits and Louis says the line, jangle, jangle, jewelry, jewelry, which he told us that Steve Coogan actually came up with, not the real Jimmy Savile. Is it from Spitting Image? Yes. As they're saying goodbye, Louis asking Savile, do you think you'll like the documentary? And Savile says he thinks he's going to love it. And he probably did, for the most part. So this is the part of the show where usually we deliver the, and what happened to that man? And I feel like we do have to put some context on it at least. So there is an article from 2015 from The Guardian, which gives a timeline of Savile's sexual abuse and its uncovering. And it says that it's known that Savile abused hundreds of children and women at the height of his fame. Investigators believe the late Top of the Pops host preyed on around 500 vulnerable victims as young as two years old at institutions including the BBC's broadcasting studios, 14 hospitals and 20 children's homes across England. At the point of the article being written, there was general inquiries at a number of hospitals looking into how their practice led to this man being given a key to kind of do whatever he wanted. This really does hit the nail on the head for me. This timeline starts in 1955, where it says the earliest incident of abuse recorded by the police. It took place in Manchester, where at the time he managed a dance hall. Then it says in 1960, in one of a handful of example cases given by the police, a 10-year-old boy asked Savile for his autograph outside a hotel. Savile took the boy inside and seriously sexually assaulted him. What that showed to me was, if Louis missed it, how many other people missed that as well? 55 is 45 years before Louis has a week with him and yet no one has stopped him. It's not even that they missed it, is it? So many people knew about it and that's the great shame I think that's been brought down on the BBC especially since then is that it was a known secret but it wasn't really a secret I mean, there were police reports and witnesses and whatever else and it just never came to anything. That's it. This whole idea of we never knew is such bollocks. How many institutions let people down in this situation? That's 1960 he seriously sexually assaulted a boy. There was a police case against him on this and yet this man went on to present Radio 1 when it launched. He presented Top of the Pops and his own children's TV show for two decades. After all this, how bad do your institutions have to be in terms of safety checking of safeguarding people that that kind of thing would happen and that you stay this beloved cultural icon i've delved into the obituaries written at the time of his death they're glowing they're absolutely glowing this man was a hero when he died he was driven through the streets of leeds in a coffin so people could clap him and see him off didn't he get a state funeral the equivalent of it's madness it's madness horrifying So, Alex, maybe we close up by asking the classic question, is this good Louis or bad Louis? Hmm, <laughs> difficult one. So I hadn't watched this episode for a long time and it's wilder than I had remembered and obviously it is quite a wild episode overall with hindsight. But imagining it as it aired, I imagine it was entertaining TV it was surprising. There were some elements of it that probably showed a side of Jimmy Savile that people hadn't seen before. I think the thing about people who are really manipulative and who are good manipulators is that you don't realise you're being manipulated by them. And I think that's what happened. And it goes to show that it can happen to anyone. As a documentary, I thought it was entertaining, I suppose. But it's about a horrifying man and he did a lot of horrifying things. 
I don't know. I don't think I can really call it good or bad, Louis. I think it's bad, Louis. I think even taking away the context, then it's hard even to do that when you watch it now. He never gets under the skin. The format of what they're meant to be doing, it's not really clear. It's kind of they're spending time together, but it's all on Jimmy's terms. I do like the fact that there is this kind of open dialogue between him and the director. I find that super interesting. But I think even at the time, would you say you really discovered that much more about Savile that you didn't already know? He does a lot of work for charity. He's very close to his mum. Maybe that was kind of interesting but so much is guarded you barely get anything out of this there's one scene two scenes i suppose where there's kind of an expose of a master manipulator someone who obviously lives on intimidation do you think they should have gone actually there's not going to be enough here to make it enlightening enough i don't know it's a pilot right so part of it is you've got to kind of wing it and see what happens it'll be interesting to compare this to episodes that come later And also, with context, if we'd never had this footage, we'd never have this small insight into Savile, even if we don't get the full picture. This is as close as anyone really ever got. So, yeah. It also shows that global warming is happening because I don't think Leeds is ever that cold anymore. Mm -mm. And the trick is to get trains everywhere, like they did in this documentary, despite it being a total pain in the arse. If you take anything away from this documentary, use trains. Thanks for listening. And if you've been waiting for a while, thanks for your patience. We're so pleased to be back with new episodes. Angels on your bodies.